We don't put stuff all up on the screens and all that because we want you to actually look in your Bible. It's good to look in your Bible. Acts 14, that's the chapter that we are examining right now. Two weeks ago, I took last week off. It was great. Thank you for that. Um, just kind of kicked back and got some rest. Bruce preached on contentment. That was cool. I thank him. I don't think he's, he's not here today. He's down in Los Angeles doing some work. Um, you know, he's in production, Hollywood movies and stuff like that. Um, so he's down there, you know, with Scorsese or whatever his name is. Uh, two weeks ago, we looked at uh, 14 verses 8 to 18. And just a brief recap, Paul and Barnabas were in the Galatian town called Lystra. Lystra had an agora or main marketplace where Paul preached the gospel daily. Uh, on one particular day, Paul was preaching and he noticed a lame man and he healed that lame man. That guy hadn't been able to walk his whole life. He was crippled in his feet and Paul healed him. And the miracle set off a series of bizarre events where the priest of Zeus, these Lycaonian people worshipped those mythological gods and Zeus was their, you know, the, the god of their gods and this priest that ran the temple that was over by the entrance to the city, he kind of gathered up all the townspeople and they kind of circled around Paul and began to set up a worship service in honor of them. They actually believed that Paul was Hermes, which is a Greek god of communication, if you will, passing messages, and then Zeus, who's the god of gods. And so they thought they were these gods made in the flesh and began to try to worship them. And how did Paul and Barnabas respond? Of course, they absorbed all of it, exalted themselves, took over the town, set up a kingdom for themselves, and did nothing of the sort. They actually pleaded with the crowd, stop! What are you doing, man? You know, you need to worship the creator, God, not me, not Barnabas. We're created beings. And so they rebuked the crowd. They pleaded with the crowd, stop your idolatry. Worship God, the creator, rather than men, rather than created things. Don't worship the creation. Worship the creator. And we learned that Paul and Barnabas were scarcely able to control and stop the crowd. Man, they just were just resolute. They just wanted to do this thing. No, we're going to worship you. They brought these garlands and they brought animals to sacrifice to them. And they were scarcely able, through their pleading, to control them. And this is where we pick up in the story. We're going to begin at 14 verse 9. Are you with me? Okay, let me pray and we'll get to work. Father, you have some things you want to teach us today. Lord, through your word, and you promise that it shall not return void, that it accomplishes all the purpose that you set forth for it to accomplish. I pray that each one of us, that each one of us would have things that you want to accomplish in our life. Some, it might be that you bring them to faith for the first time ever. They become a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. I pray that. And then for some, it's going to be just to get some greater victory in some of the areas of struggle in our laziness and in these things that seem to plague us, our flesh. God, I pray that your will would be done and that you would be glorified through this sermon. Not to my glory, as a preacher, by no means, but to your glory. 
That you are the one that has given me words to say and something to preach. And so be honored, be glorified, and change us. Lord, we are deceived if we believe that it is okay just to hear the word and not to do the word. We are deceived. And so help us to be hearers and doers. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 19. If you're there, say I'm there. 19. I'm going to read it and then we're going to get some exposition going, some commentary. It says, keep in mind that they're scarcely controlling the crowds at this point. It says, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. The Antioch here in the text is Pisidian Antioch. We read about Paul's ministry there in chapter 13. Paul and Barnabas had been driven out of that city and district by unbelieving Jews. And then we read about Iconium in the first half of chapter 14. Paul and Barnabas fled from that city. Actually, the first several verses of 14. Paul and Barnabas ended up fleeing from that city to avoid being stoned to death by unbelieving Jews. Luke tells us that the same Jews from Pisidian Antioch and then those same unbelieving Jews from Iconium actually traveled to Lystra to persecute Paul and Barnabas. Pisidian Antioch was 85 miles away from Lystra, and Iconium was about 30 miles away. It takes roughly 40 hours to walk 85 miles at a normal pace. Okay, that's a work week. That's five days at eight hours per day. How many of you guys work 40 hours a week? John won't put his hand up because he works like 96. But how many of you work like a standard 40? And how many of you feel like if you did one more extra day, you'd probably die? Right? We're talking about a work week here. We're talking about five eight-hour days. We're talking about 40 hours of walking. A 30-mile trip would have taken about 12 hours. And we must consider that it wasn't safe to walk any of those great distances between cities and provinces. There were robbers, there were bandits, there were wild animals, there were venomous snakes everywhere. We're talking about a high desert region. Even the terrain was dangerous in places. In in some places, you'd have to pass through mountain ranges to go to these cities. Traveling between these cities in ancient times was Quite a feat. Once the visiting Jews arrived, what did they do? The text says that they turned the crowds against Paul and Barnabas. How were they able to do this? What did they say or do? The Lycaonians had been hailing Paul and Barnabas as gods in the flesh. And then all of a sudden they went against them. 
This reminds me of what happened to Jesus when he entered Jerusalem at the end of his ministry. On Sunday, he was received as a, the deliverer and king, and the crowds cried, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save us now, O king. But on Friday, they cried, what? Crucify him. Crucify him. Give us Barabbas. In under a week, they went from he is our king to kill him. A similar thing has played out in our text right here. But what did they do or say to get this crowd to turn? I mean, think about it. The crowds are basically trying to worship these guys as gods, and very quickly they turn against them to the point of wanting to kill them? Trying to? You'd have to be pretty persuasive, wouldn't you? You couldn't just go up and go, don't do that. You'd end up getting rocks thrown at you. Now, Acts 17, 6-7 might provide the answer for how the visiting Jews were able to turn the crowds. During his second missionary journey, Paul, who had Silas with him, went to Thessalonica to preach the gospel. Many, many, many people were saved. Many Gentiles received the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are non-Jews. However, the Jews became jealous and stirred up a riot against them. And here's how they did it. They claimed that Paul and Silas had done what? Turned the world upside down and acted against the decrees of Caesar, the reigning Roman emperor over the whole region, saying that there is another king whose name is Jesus. That's probably the argument they used. These Lycaonians were under the Roman umbrella. Their ultimate God may have been Zeus, but their ultimate, ultimate God in the flesh was the Caesar. And so maybe they made an argument, hey man, these guys are trying to get you to worship them or to worship this Jesus when you're supposed to be worshiping Caesar. Maybe that's how they turned him. Or perhaps the visiting Jews said what the Jews in Corinth said when a similar thing happened. In Acts 18, 12 to 13, we read, The Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. So Jews in Thessalonica alleged that Paul acted against the decrees of Caesar, and in Corinth they alleged that he had authorized unlawful worship. Now, for whatever reason, Luke didn't include the details. But the result was absolutely terrible, right? We don't know how they persuaded these crowds and, and Lystra, but I would imagine they probably made a similar argument. In fact, I started to ponder if these same Jews went everywhere and just followed after them and went into all these same places and caused trouble. If you notice in the text, it doesn't say that Jews in, in Lystra rose up and did this thing because I don't think there were many Jews there. There's no synagogue because Paul went right into the Agora and preached. His way of doing things was to go into the synagogue first if a city had Jews in the synagogue. But he went right into the marketplace and began to preach. So I don't think there was a synagogue there. I don't think there were many Jews there if there were any at all. These Jews came from out of town and from great distance. And I believe they pretty much followed the tour, the preaching tour, the plant, you know, church planting tour, the missionary journeys, and followed to each place and stirred up trouble and found whoever they could to listen to them and to turn against them. I think that's what happened. 
We're not sure exactly what was said, but the result was absolutely terrible. What does the text say? It says they sought to, they attempted to execute Paul through stoning. The Jews riled the crowd, these, you know, foreign Jews, these Jews that had come from out of town, they riled the crowd up to the point of hatred and anger to the point that they began to riot against Paul and Barnabas, or against Paul at least it says, and they began to pick up rocks and hurl them at the apostle. Rocks were crashing and smashing into Paul's body and face all over. The typical way, and this is a Jewish form of execution, but the typical way to do it is to take the prisoner or the guilty party or person to strip them naked, to throw them down an embankment, to force them, and usually the fall alone broke the neck or the back because it was 15 or 20 feet. They would throw you down this pit, you would land, and then they would pick up gigantic rocks, rocks that you could barely pick up over your head, and then they would begin to throw them down on top of him, aiming for the face, aiming for the chest. It wasn't like they just, you know, you were out in the middle of a field and they started, you know, like we used to do when we were kids, the old dirt clod fight. You ever take one of those in the teeth? It's a lot of fun. Like two days later, you still got the grains in your teeth. You're like, oh, what is that? <laughs> Hope I didn't chip a tooth. But they didn't do it that way. They would throw, strip you naked... No dignity, throw you down a pit and then launch rocks on you. We don't know if that's how they did it here. That might have been how they did it. That was the typical way to do it. Rocks were smashing into his body and face. At one point, Paul went limp. If he were standing, he went limp and dropped to the ground. If he were lying down, he just went out. The Lycaonians and Jews, it says in the text, thought he was dead. Thought he was done. We did our job. You aimed for the chest, Freddie. Good job. Look at him. He's not moving. They thought he was dead, and thinking that he was dead, they took his body, drug him. Drug him like a piece of meat. Drug him like an animal carcass. Have you seen what they do in the Middle East to Americans when they get their hands on them and drag the soldiers through the streets naked and beat up and shot and run through and beheaded? This is how they drug him. They drug him outside of the city gates and threw his body out there. It's left him out there. Now there is much speculation about how this all played out. And everyone's got an opinion. Some say that Paul was actually killed during the stoning and then he was actually brought back to life outside the city gates. And they suggest, they take it a little further by suggesting that while Paul was dead during this short moment, this is the moment where he went and experienced the third heaven as we read about in 2 Corinthians 12. Some say he died, and during that moment of death, that's where he visited the third heaven, which is this mysterious kind of interesting thing we read about there. Some say that. They believe that. And then some say that Paul faked his death so they would stop. <laughs> he played possum, if you will. He basically did what I would do if I got attacked by a bear. Right? You don't go, you know, to a bear, right? And you don't run. You're supposed to play dead and dumb. And then they just slap you around a little bit, spin you. You know, of course, you're in the fetal position. And hopefully they lose interest. 
and then go, right? Some think that he did something along those lines. And then some say that he was just knocked unconscious by blows to the head and that the townspeople and Jews simply thought that he was dead. Rather, he was unconscious, but they just thought he was dead because he wasn't moving. And they basically gave up, drug him, and threw him outside of the town. Now, I believe the answer to the mystery is actually in the verse. I don't see how people miss this. Look at it again. Notice how it says, supposing. You see it? Supposing means they thought or perceived that Paul was dead. The text does not say that Paul died, does it? It says they supposed that he was dead. The text does not say that Paul had died and been brought back to life. If Paul had died and been brought back to life, Luke would have made a big deal about it, as he did with all the other resuscitation or resurrection-like cases in the book of Acts. You don't make lightly of the miracle of when God brings someone from being a cold corpse to living, breathing, and warm, and communicating, and talking. That's probably one of the grandest of all miracles. If that had happened here, you think he would have just breezed over it? Oh, that's not at all what he did when we look at Tabitha and what happened with Tabitha who was dead and raised alive in Acts 9 or Eutychus in Acts 20. Luke always makes a big deal when someone is brought back to life. And so it kind of defeats the whole thinking that he died and was resurrected. In terms of faking his death, we might want to take into consideration his wounds. Don't you think that it would be hard to fake while your body is covered in contusions, gashes, and blood? I stub my toe and I make a lot of sounds, most of which I have to confess later. I get a paper cut. Ah! Or I go, mm! think about it. For whatever reason, my eyes and my feet are not connected, so I'm always blowing my feet off at the house. And, and I, it's very rare that I... Okay. <laughs> so much better. In fact, not only do I verbalize my pain, but I think that running around will get rid of it. <laughs> On stub toe, right? You run around? What is it that, about people that run when they get hurt? Right? Legs off. Do you think it'd be hard to fake it if you just got all these rocks catapulted onto you by all these people? The whole darn town was worshiping. There was a lot of rocks. There was a lot of people throwing rocks on them. I think it'd be a little hard to fake it. To fake them out, you would have to keep your body perfectly still. Like some preachers. Right? Not me. You'd have to control your breathing. And you'd have to watch your chest with one eye barely open to make sure you can't see, right? Because when you fake dead, you, you can't. Oh, no, it's moving. Right? May you hold your breath. You'd have to be perfectly still. You'd have to control your breathing so your chest movements aren't detectable. You'd have to make no sounds whatsoever. Making a sound is a dead giveaway. Paul had been blasted with rocks which means that he had wounds all over his body. Which of us could remain silent with wounds like those? Stub my toe and 
I whine at a paper cut. Nah. Paul didn't die and get raised. Luke put they supposed he was dead. Paul didn't play possum and fake his death. He, he couldn't do that because he was beat to a pulp. I think scenario three is the key. He had been knocked unconscious. And they thought he was dead and dragged him outside the city gates, as the text totally says and implies. Paul actually recorded this experience in 2 Corinthians 11. In 11, 23 to 28, he listed the hardships and persecutions and things, difficult, nightmarish things, bloody things, hard things that he faced as a church planting missionary. In verses 24 and 25 of 2 Corinthians 11, he said this, five times I received at the hands of the Jews, look, it's the Jews again, the 40 lashes less one. That was a form of punishment. He says, three times I was beaten with rods, And then he says, once I was stoned. Paul was referring to the one and only time they had ever been stoned in his life, which took place at Lystra. You'd think that if he had died and been raised, he would have said something there in 2 Corinthians 11. The text says that Paul was the, that that was the only time that he had ever been stoned. And I think our text implies or says clearly that, you know, because they supposed he was dead, he just was simply knocked out. He was unconscious. And there's something else extremely interesting about that whole story that we're reading there, and that's the fact that Barnabas isn't even mentioned. What's he doing? That stinks. You know, oh, I know that hurt. I mean, he's not even mentioned. Where's he mentioned at there? What's up with that? Were the Lycaonians afraid to throw rocks at the one they called Zeus? I don't think so. They still believed that Paul and Barnabas were gods in the flesh. They wouldn't have stoned Paul. They had become convinced that they weren't gods by any means. I think now at this point they think that they're false teachers or something of that sort. Deceivers. I think they went after Paul alone because he was the chief speaker. Killing him off would, in their minds, put an end to the proclamation of the gospel, stirring all these people up to give their hearts over to Jesus Christ and to live differently and to become countercultural and all these things. I think they thought, man, if we take out the guy who keeps saying all this stuff, we're good. So they went after him. It was Paul who was the one that was threatening, not Barnabas, Now, this is both interesting and alarming. Don't misunderstand what I'm about to say to you. I don't think that Barnabas was at fault. I don't think that he was soft. I believe that his role was more of a supportive role, which basically kept him off the Lycaonians' radar to some degree. If he had been the primary speaker, preacher, teacher like Paul... Barnabas would have gotten stoned, and that's who we'd be reading about. Barnabas may not have been at fault in this whole text. He may have flown under the radar and all that. He may not have been at fault. I don't believe he was. But many in the church today are at fault. U.S. Christians love comfort and easy living. In order to maintain the easy life, they do not engage the culture with the truth. In many cases, professing believers even modify the truth in order to accommodate the culture. 
The church has become filled with low-flying, radar-avoiding, non-threatening types. R.C. Sproul wrote, How many of us have been stoned and left for dead because of the proclamation of our faith, the gospel? How many of us have been burned at the stake? How many of us have been used as human torches to illumine the gardens of Nero? How many of us have been sentenced to the Circus Maximus as fodder for roaring lions or for the sport of gladiators? The blood of the martyrs has been the seed of the church. He says, we sing about the faith of our fathers, which led them to dungeons, to death, and to all sorts of peril. But we don't live in a place like that. We have freedom of assembly in the United States. Is it because our country is more open to the proclamation of the gospel? Or is it because, in a very real sense, the church militant has become the church impotent as we seek a safe way to live and experience our faith? You know why I quoted him? Because I couldn't have said it any better. I think the church militant has become the church impotent. Why? Because the church is addicted to safety. One of the greatest examples of this is seen in how the church yields to the government in order to maintain its tax-exempt status. If the church violates any one of a handful of governmental rules laws, it will lose that exemption. Now, here are the big three. I went to .gov, whatever, and looked them up. Number one, no substantial part of a church's activity may be attempting to influence legislation. A church is not allowed to combine its efforts to influence legislation under any circumstances, even if the government seeks to pass legislation like legalized abortion or gay marriage or any number of these things, the church must not make a consorted effort against that legislation. If it does, it will lose its tax exemption. Number two, the church may not intervene in political campaigns. These are taken directly from the manual. Churches are not allowed in a consorted way together to endorse or campaign for political candidates under any circumstances. Pastors are not supposed to influence their congregations to vote for this person, to vote for that person, or to vote for this bill, or to vote for that bill. If you do so, you violate the law you lose your tax exemption. Number three, the church's purposes and activities may not be illegal or violate fundamental public policy. Churches are not allowed to violate law or to make a consorted effort against any public policy regardless of what it is. What is the threat against churches for violating any of these governmental ordinances? The loss of tax exemption. That's it. Churches have silenced themselves in order to keep tax exemption. Is tax exemption worth it? Are we to believe that the first century church would have struck such a deal with the devil? Now, one of the nice things about, I enjoy it just like you. 
One of the nice things about tax exemption is the tax write-offs that donors receive for giving, right? I get that statement every year and I, I use it right against my taxes. I send it off to my accountant and say, hook me up with some cash. But is the write-off worth our silence in some of the most important arenas of our culture? If we want tax breaks, we must keep quiet when it comes to politics, law, and public policy. Meanwhile, we enjoy our tax breaks and write-offs while our government and our culture spirals out of control. Our government and our culture is doing all that it can to remove God from our land And here we are with tape over our mouths, enjoying our little tax breaks and write-offs. Why? Because we are more concerned about comfort and easy living. What kind of faith have we been duped into accepting, believing, and living out? I don't see this kind of faith in the first century church or in the scriptures. On the contrary, what I see in the scriptures is a countercultural faith that threatened and ticked off kings, governors, governments, large numbers of citizens, and religious people. But that's not how it is here, is it? Again, R.C. Sproul wrote, Tax exemption is the sword held over the church and other nonprofit organizations to keep them from being critical of the government and of governmental prom, uh, policies. He says, that is not a good thing, and I hope as Christians we would be willing to risk our tax right off for the sake of righteousness. If the only reason we give our tithes and offerings to the church is that it gives us a tax write-off, he says, I guarantee that God is not pleased with your gift. Not at all. He says, we are to give those gifts whether or not the government gives us any break in terms of our taxes. Those are my sentiments exactly. I couldn't agree more. The church mustn't fear the government. We are to fear the Lord. Trading righteousness for tax breaks is evil in the eyes of God. Flying under the radar in order to maintain the easy life is evil before God. Remaining quiet while our culture destroys itself is evil in the eyes of God. Imagine if men like William Wilberforce and Abraham Lincoln loved comfort more than righteousness and then chose to be quiet. Where would we be with slavery right now? Or what about Martin Luther or Athanasius or Augustine or the Apostle Paul or Jesus? Where would we be if they chose comfort over righteousness? We would be damned. That's what you'd be. Period. It's time for the church to take a stand. It is time for the church to take a stand. And our stand is the mighty gospel of Jesus Christ. It is is our only hope, and it is the only hope of this world. 
As God's people, we must proclaim it, and we must proclaim it boldly without fear. And we must leave the results in God's hands. But God, help us if we choose comfort. God, help us if we choose the easy life and tax breaks over righteousness. We shouldn't expect anything from him if that's what we do. I'll tell you what we should expect from him, and that's his hand of discipline. It's rather shocking, isn't it? Tax breaks. Tax exemption. Is that our God? It certainly feels like and seems like it's our idol. We hire lawyers when those things are threatened. We hire lawyers to defend our tax exemption as if we couldn't live, move, and breathe without it. Shame on us. Shame on me. You shall have no other gods before me. Now let's move on. Notice what happened next. Look at who came to Paul's aid as he laid there in the dirt, beat up, bludgeoned, bloody. Look at 20. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up. What? He rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derby. Or Derby, whatever. It's French, Derby. It says the disciples gathered about him. Which disciples are we talking about? I don't remember him taking a bunch of disciples with him wherever he went. I know he had old Barnabas with him. Hey, what we're talking about here are the new Christians that got converted in Lystra. Those who had been converted through Paul's preaching ministry. Those who had heard the gospel and surrendered to Jesus Christ. Now some think that Timothy was amongst them. Timothy, his mother Eunice, and his grandmother Lois all lived in Lystra. I think Timothy and his family were converted while Paul preached at the Agora, at the town center. Timothy, he actually went on to become Paul's disciple. He sat under and toured around with Paul and learned from him for about 11 years. And then he went on to become a pastor at the church of Ephesus. So the disciples, and I think Timothy and his grandma and his mom were probably there, they went around him and they began to aid him. They encircled him. And what does it say that Paul did next? This is astonishing. The text says he rose up and entered the city. What city? The city he almost got killed in. Who does that? Is this guy like, you know, a couple cans short of a six-pack? Who gets up after being beaten like that and then goes back into the city it wouldn't surprise me if it all happened with the crowd that had just left him and tried to kill him. He could see their backs. Who does this? This is astonishing. He was nearly killed. And he turns around. He gets up and he goes into Lystra. Who gets stoned into unconsciousness and then turns towards the city where he was nearly killed moments earlier and then goes back into it? Paul is like the darn Terminator. He's like the creatures I fight in my dreams. 
No matter how many blows I strike on them with my feet and hands and how many bullets I launch at them, they keep coming. You ever had those dreams? It won't die! You had them? Or am I the only one that fights those weird things because I watch The Walking, because I watch the walking Dead? I mean, it's, I'm a sinner. You ever have those? That's who he is. You know, he just gets up and he, and he goes in. I just, it's just amazing. I read a Calvin quote a couple of weeks ago because I thought it was so befitting for that time together we had. And, and I'd like to read it again because I think it describes Paul to the T. It says, when any person has his eyes fixed on God, I'm talking about fixed, they're not moving, they're on God, his heart will be invincible and utterly incapable of being moved. Doesn't that describe this guy? If he had his eyes on his wounds, do you think he'd have got up and went into the city? If he'd had his eyes on Barnabas and be thinking, why didn't you get rocked? What's up with that? You were right at my side. I would have picked up a rock and hit him. Now you know what it feels like. Right? Oh, okay, I got you. Oh, you can't make any noise and you got to control your breathing. Oh, never mind. This was Paul. He had his eyes fixed on God. His heart was invincible and utterly incapable of being moved. Next to the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm not sure if I've ever read about a person who displayed this level of resolve. It's startling, isn't it? The only explanation for his resolve is the Holy Spirit. Way back in Acts 13, 2-4, we learned that the Holy Spirit had selected Paul and Barnabas to go on this you know, first missionary journey. It selected them to be the guys that would be anointed to go on the journey, and then the Holy Spirit is the one that sent them. Paul had massive success when he preached the gospel when he went to cities. Why? Because the Holy Spirit attended his preaching. Paul was able to stare, stare down and rebuke evil, heal the lame, narrowly escape angry mobs, get up after nearly being killed and go back into the danger zone. Why? Because the Holy Spirit was with him and in him. Don't you think for a moment that he was bionic and had some sort of ability? He was no different than you and I. He was flesh, he was human, he was a man. Men are weak. I don't care how strong you think you are, buddy. At the core of who you are, you're weak. But he had the mighty Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit went with him. Wherever he went, the Holy Spirit was in him. And it is the same with every man, every woman, and every child who has the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us guts, gives us fearlessness, give us, gives us boldness, gives us power, and gives us strength to continue in life and to continue on mission. The Holy Spirit is the only explanation for Paul's resolve. That's it. And I know if Paul were standing here, he would say, Hallelujah, brother. Now, what did Paul do after he entered the danger zone list? Or what did he do after he went back in? It says he stayed the night. We don't know if he was, you know, laid up in someone's house trying to heal. It could have been. Or if he returned to the Agora and started preaching again. I mean, it just doesn't say. Wouldn't surprise me if he went with a pair of crutches into the Agora. Started preaching. We don't know what he did when he went back in. But it says that he went and stayed the night. And then it says on the following day... 
that he and Barnabas traveled to Derby. Now this town was 60 miles away. A two to three day walk from Lystra. Who gets stoned, goes back into the city where he almost got killed, stays the night, gets up and then begins a 60 mile journey by foot, I would imagine, to another town. Who does this? MacArthur wrote, the trip for one in Paul's condition must have been excruciatingly painful. But Paul never willingly missed a day, however, since the door for ministry was temporarily closed at Lystra, he simply moved on to minister somewhere else. Nothing daunted him. Not even being stoned nearly to death, he was persistent, committed to making the most of his time because the days are evil. You think about this. Who begins a 60-mile foot journey right after being stoned nearly to death? He was injured. He had contusions all over his body. He had to. If you don't get stoned and get away without getting wounded. Some scholars even suggest, and it could be legitimate, that he may have had some broken bones. Breaking, the breaking of bones actually happened so often during stonings. You're talking about big stones being launched down on somebody. Could have snapped a leg, could have snapped his arm, could have, you know, broken ribs. That's incredible. Now listen to what this physician said. He said, if you are struck hard enough to lose consciousness, then by definition you have injured your brain. People who have been knocked out can experience full recovery, temporary or permanent coma, or death. They supposed he was dead. Why? Because he was knocked out. He could have had a brain injury. In fact, he did injure his brain to some degree. Paul had a concussion he had contusions and maybe even some broken bones. And then he set out on this two to three day journey to Derby. Regardless, here's what gets me. There are people in this church and in all churches who ditch Sunday worship because they have to drive a couple of miles. You know, I've got to drive from here to here and that's an inconvenience. So I'm going to skip church. I don't want to go. And look at this example that we're reading about. You're not even, most of the time you're coming here on Sunday just to, to be built up and to be encouraged and, and to be invested into and to be poured into. You're not going to have to come down here and preach before an angry mob. Maybe your pastor's a little angry at times, but I'm not going to throw anything at you. Maybe some water to wake you up and snap you out of your stupor. You don't have any danger here. Not at this point. Oh, man, i got to get ready. i got to get ready. Man, I just want to do it. What? You see what we're reading? And, and the thing is, there isn't a thing wrong with them. They don't have a concussion. They don't have contusions. They're healthy. And I'll say this. If a person is unwilling to come to the assembly on Sunday, it is unlikely that they will engage in ministry during the rest of the week. The assembly is the starting point for weekly ministry. 
Those who ditch the assembly have no starting point and are unlikely to engage at other points. I know this to be true because I've been doing ministry and watching people for a, a while. I've seen it in my own life. I've wrestled with these things personally. I've, I've struggled through bouts of disinterest and laziness. I know what it's like, but when I read passages like this, I think to myself, the days are evil. The time is short. God has called me to be a minister of the gospel, to make disciples. Why would I exchange my calling and duty for comfort and easy living? And consequently, I forfeit my joy when I do it. Why? Because joy comes through obeying the Lord and serving him, not through living comfortably. Amen? Amen. Why do we do it? Look at this example. Isn't it shocking? Ending thoughts. Comfortable, easy Christianity is not biblical Christianity. Comfortable, easy Christianity is not biblical Christianity. The book of Acts has been making this lucidly clear week after week after week after week. It has been exposing many of the fallacies and falsities that undergird American mainstream Christianity. It has been laying siege to our core philosophical beliefs and ideas. The book of Acts, for me personally, has launched, and I know for many of you, has launched salvo after salvo against the things we cling to and protect. Our comfort, our ease, our selfishness, our self-centeredness, our greed, our safety, our risk management, our preferences, our stewardship. The list goes on and on and on, does it not? Have we been just going through this book for no reason whatsoever? Or to be changed and begin to live as Christ lived and as the apostles lived? You've heard me quote James 1.22 every week, I believe, almost every week. We are to be more than hearers of the word. We are to be doers of the word. Do you think that we just read these examples of what Paul did and then we go home and return and resume our regularly scheduled programming? No, we see what he did and if we, we hear and we see... But now we're to say, look what he did. Guess what? That's what I'm to do. That's what it means to obey. That's what it means to be a doer of the word, friend. A hearer just hears it all and then goes back to business as usual. Get my business done. But a doer says, I hear it. I see it. 
And I know God's calling me to do something about it because guess what? I've been striving for comfort. I've been striving for ease. I've been striving for tax exemption. I've been, stri I've been doing everything I can to clip these wings and to crawl under the radar so that my workmates won't get fired up and ticked off at me because I'm a man of the gospel. I've been doing all I can to get my boss off my back. I'm doing everything I can to fly low. Guess what? You are being disobedient, friend just as I do it. I hope this is, I just hope it's cutting. I'm not mad, believe me. I'm just as guilty. Being a doer means we've heard this stuff and we're actually doing, we're actually living this risky kind of, I, 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 I've lived in comfort long enough, that's it. It's time for me to live a little uncomfortably it's time for me to use this voice that God has given me. I'm going to pursue righteousness in my own life, and I'm going to expose unrighteousness in our culture. Why? Because I hate people and they're a bunch of sinners? No, because you love people and you don't want them to perish. That's why. Dang it. Think of William Wilberforce and these men. Think of those great reformers. If they hadn't have taken a stand, where would you be? And Maybe God is saying to you today, guess what? You're one of them. That's who I've created you to be. That's why I saved you and redeemed you. That you would, my carry, you would carry my banner high while they're slinging arrows and crap at you. But I got you. I got you. You're secured in me. Your security and purpose and value and worth and all that is in what my son did. You do not have to fear, man. You do not have to fear the government. Go out and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, when will we obey what that says? We love hearing it. When are we going to obey it? Are you with me? I'm sweating. That little James chapter where it says that we're to be mere, more than just mere hearers of the word, that we're to be doers. It also says that those who are just hearers and not doers live in a deception. They are deceived. They think that it's okay to hear and not do. Is that you? My prayer for this church is that we would be committed, as we so are, to hearing the word, but that we would be equally committed to doing what it says. That we would be committed to the assembly and to our community. For some of you, it'll begin by you just recommitting yourself to being here regularly. That'll be your first step. My prayer is that we would live bold and daring lives as the early Christians and the Apostle Paul and Barnabas lived, that most importantly we would live as our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ lived. If he'd have lived and chose comfort and ease, he would have never made it to Calvary making no atonement for you, none. But he did it. And he says, as you heard earlier, and I'm going to read it again, you got to die to your 
self. Jesus set for us the ultimate example of how to live a bold, risky, sacrificial, selfless life. And I pray that we would literally follow his example and our first step would be to take our comfort and ease and take them to the altar of God, place them on the altar and watch them burn. That is what God requires of each of us. May we obey him in reverence and in joy. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. No one takes up the cross once and for all. I took it up 10 years ago. Now I'm doing whatever I want. Every day, pick that old rugged cross up and drag it, carry it, sacrifice, selflessness, eyes fixed on God, a heart that cannot be moved. Forever, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will what? Save it. For what does it profit a man? If he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Amen. And Father, we lift, actually we do not lift ourselves up to you at all. We put ourselves in a spiritual way prostrate on our faces before you, asking for mercy because we have sinned in complacency and comfort and ease of living. God, forgive us. Put those things to death. Cut them out of us. Put your Holy Spirit in us. Cause us to be bold. Cause us to be unflinching. When we take our licks at work, may we return the next day and keep repeating the wondrous things that we are doing by just proclaiming the gospel. May we take our stripes and repeat. Take our stripes and repeat. Just keep doing it. May we not cower when the world comes against us. When the government threatens us. For if God is on our side, who can stand against us? May we live sacrificial lives for your name. Death and comfort gone. Boldness, holiness, purity come. May we not be afraid to speak the truth and love to those who need to hear it. And that's everyone. May we not be afraid or forget to recite it to ourselves. We need to hear the gospel. Oh, Lord, help us today. We repent of our ease and comfort. Stir us up. We may serve you rightly. And we may serve you faithfully. Bring our joy to the max for our obedience. You will do so. Father, as we take this time of communion, Lord, I pray that we would remember what your son did for us. 
that he lived a perfect life. He earned for us a righteous standing that we could never earn our, on our own. We're just slugs and snails. He earned for us a perfect, righteous standing that we may know you, love you, respond to you, pray to you, and be in your eternal presence forever. That's what he did through that righteousness, Lord. And then, and then he made that sacrifice on the cross. He displayed that absolute selflessness. He took his own life. He laid it down. Nobody took it from him. He said, I lay down my own life. He went and laid it down to make an atonement for our sin, that our sin would be removed and forgotten as far as the east is from the west. That's what he did. And not only did he do that, Lord, we need to remember that he was placed in a tomb for three days, settled our accounts with the Father. And what did he do? He rose in three days, conquering death and sin. <clears throat> That's the gospel. That's how we've been saved, by hearing that, responding to that. And that is our message. And that's what we are to proclaim to this world. We remember those things as we take communion. We celebrate those things. And may we also be reminded that there is no earning with you whatsoever. You have provided all that we need. And that we can simply live in and enjoy your grace and serve you as new creations, as new people, the body of Christ, glorious church, the true church. May we marvel during this time at your goodness. And may we ponder the things that we've heard and have a time of confession, laying our sin and comfort in those things on the altar to be burned. And fill us with the Holy Spirit now. We pray this in Jesus' name.